When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome to the family with L.A. Nick, Alex Bernard Rasmussen, co-host Catherine Brandt, and Andy Bernard. We will go come back with the hour number two. We'll kick it off with Michael Berriman. Ladies and gentlemen, he's got a book coming out, got a movie coming out, got all kinds of stuff. Michael Berriman, you'd know him as the man from The Hills Have Eyes. Michael Berriman, our special guest right after this. Tommy, how long have you been at KQ? 36 years now. Wow, that's loyalty. Well, if I'm completely honest, it isn't the company that I'm loyal to. It's the listeners. I figured out a long time ago they're the only reason I have a job. Why are you asking? Well, we had another great month at Coon Rapids Nissan and Burnsville Nissan. In fact, Burnsville continues to be the number one Nissan store in Minnesota. The loyalty part. Get to the loyalty part. Oh, yeah. This month, if you buy or lease a new Rogue or a Pathfinder from us, we'll give you an extra 500 off as long as you own or are leasing a Nissan. That is cool. Do they have to trade it? Nope. It's just a reward for being loyal. By the way, the new Pathfinder is fantastic. It's got a nine-speed transmission, and JLo says it'll practically pull the building. We also cut a deal with our good buddy Charlie Swenson, who's running a Nissan store in Chicago. He gave us some extra rogues. Because Charlie's such a nice guy. Well, Paul might have threatened him. Sounds like Paul. For details, go to Walzer Nissan or Coon Rapids Nissan and claim your loyalty gift. Tommy, give him some Elvis loyalty. Thank you. Thank you very much. Michael Bryant, Brad Sean Bryant, what's the latest? Uh, we're just trying to represent people who have been injured through no fault of their own. We're trying to talk to them before they talk to an adjuster or before they take a settlement that isn't something they should get based upon their injuries. How many people are out there in different, not in the law business, that love to run around scaring people before you even get to them? Well, adjusters will want to settle cases right. and they want to close files. So based upon that, they do what they have to. Um, I think there's a lot of circumstances where they probably act as attorneys where they're not attorneys and they try yeah. to explain people's rights or they give them a certain view that if they look at it. And what I always say is this, if the adjuster really truly thinks the offer they made makes sense, they'd have them come see us. You know? And that's exactly my my question is, you have to understand who has the best, your best interest in mind, correct? Well, you want to know what your rights are. You know, whether yep. or not you decide yep. you're going to hire us or not, that's a choice. It's a free consultation, and you want to understand what your, all your rights are and what coverages you have. And plus the fact, I hang out with you, so you got to be a good guy <laughs> if I'm hanging out with you. Uh, maybe. <laughs> uh, okay. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Bryant, Bradshaw, and Bryant. Say to you is eek. Let me know when we're ready to go, Andy. <clears throat> All right. Not yet. That's cool. Like I said, I talked to Michael this morning, so it'd be good to talk to him again. Michael Berriman will be joining us in a couple of minutes to talk about his new book, his new movie, all, all kinds of. Matter of fact, his, his, he just put out his book to the publishers, so we'll have to get uh, 
figure out which publisher he's going to go with and move forward from there, which he's a hell of a nice guy. Oh, by the way, was that one of you guys that was asking me? I know Tony Lee asked this morning, but uh, Michael Berriman has hypohydrotic ectodermal dysplasia. Huh? How was that? Close. Okay, how do you say it? <laughs> hypohydrotic ectodermal dysplasia. 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 Uh, it's a rare condition leaving him with no sweat glands, no hair, fingernails, no teeth, none of it. All right. He I has actually, called in, by the way. That's wonderful. I mean, what's great about that is you come that as successful as Mark, Michael Berriman is, uh, there's no real excuse for people to go, well, yeah, but look what happened to me. It's like, get I, know, off your I know a beautiful girl from Australia who got that but yeah. when she was like 30-something and lost it all. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I did not know you could get it later. Yeah. Michael Berriman, our special guest. How are you doing, sir? Doing very well. Glad to hear it. You know, you're going to get sick of me, Michael, because now I do two shows. I do a morning show and an afternoon show, and now you've been on both of them today. <laughs> Lucky I, you. That's quite, all, that's, that's quite all right. I heard it's legal in most states. <laughs> I heard that it's legal in most states. Late 1970s horror genre icon who's best known for his creepy performance as Pluto in the uncompromising Wes Craven horror film, The Hills Have Eyes. Uh, we talked to Michael about he's got a book coming out. it has got another movie coming out. But he doesn't know if it's another movie because once in a while they change the title of the movie and they don't tell him, so he doesn't know. Which is, that's kind of interesting, I would think. Um, it happens on occasion. It does happen on occasion. Now, Michael, what's interesting is I, I, I noticed this this morning when I was talking to you, but I'll, uh, <clears throat> I, I want to bring it up now. Um, they say, you, you remind some people of the late, latter-day Rondo Hatton, but... Completely different. Look, I loved Rondo Hatton too. I thought he was terrific. Don't get me wrong, but to me, you don't. You and he have very little in common. I think. Um, I would agree. <laughs> yeah, I don't understand. I would agree. Yeah, I don't really get that. Um, to Berriman's credit, he managed to develop upon his uh, Pluto character and has turned up in numerous sci-fi fantasy movies. And how many... I talked about this. Literally, the list of your movies is about two feet long in regular type. So do you know how many movies you've been in, Michael? Um, I, I I stopped keeping track a, a, a while back as... Uh, um, I'm just waiting for the next phone call. Uh, no, I, I really don't know, uh, honestly. Uh, uh, maybe maybe 50 films, maybe a little more, and maybe about the same amount for television and videos, uh, um, probably. So at least, at 100. least 100 credits, I would imagine. Oh, yeah, I don't think there's any question about that. And the first, what was the very first one, Michael? Well, the first one was I worked one day um for Warner Brothers Studios and George Powell, producer, directed by Michael Anderson. It was called Doc Savage, the Man of Bronze with Ron Ely. Oh sure. That's a man. No, how that how was did, uh, my one Pardon me? Uh, I was gonna say how did how did did you audition for the part? Did you meet someone? How, how did that happen? Well it was um so number one, I, ne- I never sought out to be an actor ever. Right. I was going to Homestead in Alaska, and I was in Washington State um, at the time. I was getting my paperwork together. Came back to Santa Monica, 
uh, a friend had a little gift shop in Venice Beach, so I kind of joined in on that. Actually, it was a little plant shop. It was not a florist. Uh, so some of the uh, can't believe everything online. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, it was just a little arty farty. It was a little cottage that was built in you know probably in nineteen forties, back when LA was just you know Culver City was just uh, farms and uh, um, people uh, grew flowers and. It was beautiful. So anyway, uh, I left college, uh, didn't have a specific degree or paperwork to get a killer job. And uh, I just was, uh, you know, early 70s, figured, well, you know, we'll see what's happening. And, oh, my friend said, hey, uh, you know, I, I got a little, a little shop and we sell houseplants, you know, nothing big, nothing major, mostly to little old ladies. And a lot of our other Bohemian-type friends on West Washington Boulevard, which is now uh, untouchable because, you know, the values went up uh, 40 years later. Oh, God. Anyway, um, the local artists would, you know, say, hey, can I put my artwork, you know, on the wall, on the counter, and, you know, we can get a percentage. Yeah, sure. You know, we, we, we didn't make any money. But being in that location put me across the street from a very high-end antique store called the Gallimaufry. And the Gallimaufry was owned by a husband and wife, and the wife was the daughter of George Powell. Oh. So one night they had a, uh, we were having, we used to go over there on you know, Friday evenings and you know have a glass of wine and chit-chat, whatever, and they said, hey, we're having an invitation-only sale to very wealthy people because we have some stuff in here in our antique store that's like priceless you know, from all over the world, Egypt, you know, this and that. I go, sure, what, what, what would you like us to do? He says, well, you, you know, bring in some of your houseplants and your, your bigger ones, like some of the palms that you have. It would, you know, kind of make our antique store look a little homey. I go, okay, yeah, we can do that. So we did that. We brought about, you know, 20, 30 plants over there and distribute them around. And we were, you know, we dressed up real nice. And here come Rolls Royces and Bentleys and chauffeurs and, you know, people that had money to buy expensive stuff. So they had catering. Yeah, it was nice. You know, hey, you know, some wine, some good conversation, educated people. And um, that was what we were doing. We were hanging out for a couple hours. Well, during that period of time, a gentleman walked up to me and he said, oh, excuse me, are you an actor? And I said, no, I'm not an actor. And he said, well, you have an interesting face. And I would like to click in my movie. And I go, yeah, yeah, well, uh, well, what's the punchline? And he handed me a business card that said, George Powell, Warner Brothers Studios. And I said, oh. holy crap. I said, um, you made uh, War of the Worlds and Journey to the Center of the Earth. And he just said, let's call my office. I think you'd fit the part of a coroner in a movie that we're doing that Doc Savage book on. And I go, oh, I read some of those. And he said, yeah, I want to do uh, The Man of Bronze, you know, the first one. And I go, Okay, so I called his office, went to Warner Brothers, and in his office he had every book, I think 120 of them are right about that number, all paper, all on the wall, and he was just a big fan of, I mean, the guy's a brilliant artist, and so I said, sure, I could, uh, you know, uh, what do you have in mind? He says, well, uh, um, Doc shows up in Hidalgo and near the corner, and his father died mysteriously, and you give him the autopsy result, and you're still unsure of what it was. And then Doc takes the samples that I made back to his secret uh, fortress of solitude, and the story continues. 
I go, oh, sure. So we filmed it at Harold Lloyd's estate, which was very cool. And we did the scene and got done with the day. And um, you know, it was interesting to see how, you know, how, how a movie is made. And, and I go, wow, that's really cool. I actually got in the Screen Actors Guild, joined the union. Uh, after I paid my dues, I had, uh, I think, about $350 in my pocket. And then um, I didn't have an agent or anything, you know, the producer. Uh, discovered me, and that's what George promised me to always say if anybody asked how I got started, and so that's a shout-out to my buddy. And that's how it started. And I figured, well, that was a pretty quick career, so um, you know, I was getting ready to uh, move north, go to Alaska. And then I got a phone call, um, and uh, I said, hi, who are you? And they said, we're uh, casting for a movie on uh, one floor with a cuckoo's nest, and you look like you could you had skull surgery and you know, we could make you the uh, lobotomy patient you know and put scars on your forehead and uh, you could be in our movie and uh, we got your photograph from which I didn't have any headshots but uh, George had sent um, a, a picture to the casting director for Cuckoo's Nest but the only reason that happened was because George Powell's casting director was the same casting director. Mike, Mike Fenton, Gene Feinberg, the, the, the team of the two. So had he not had the same um, casting directors, I never, it, it never would have happened to do Cuckoo's Nest on my second day of work. And I worked 127 days on the project, and uh, all of that is described in my memoir. And uh, um, it's pretty darn interesting. And, and there was some serendipity that happened. There was some karma that kind of put me in the right place at the right time, but that's all in my book. But, uh, so that's how it started. That was my first job. And then after Cuckoo's Nest, I met Wes Craven, and we did The Hills Have Eyes. That was uh, my third job. God, what an amazing story. Now, Michael, I, I've always wanted to ask you this. I was going to ask you this morning, but we kind of ran out of time this morning. Because of your presence, because you're, you're Michael Berriman and you have this presence, has anybody ever asked you to overact? Because you don't need to overact. That, that's one thing I've, I've really enjoyed about watching you all these years. Is you just act like a normal person. Well, you don't, you. You, yeah, you don't ever overact. I mean, you know that, though, don't you? Obviously. I do know that. I, 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 I don't overact. I learned a lesson early on when we were doing Cuckoo's It's probably halfway through the shoot, and there were no secrets. You know, six days a week filming at the real... Uh, real hospital. We had a wing to ourselves. We're all living in a hotel. People are coming and going, visiting from other places and family members. And and uh, well, you have you know 100 to 150 people all working on the same project for that long period of time. Everybody's strengths and weaknesses will become obvious. So it became a big extended family. Mm-hmm. So I learned about overacting, which you don't do. Right. You follow your director's advice. And you should. And I studied cinematography while I was there. I got a, a book from Milos. Um, I studied camera. I started on my days off. I would be there ten hours a day just to learn things. You learn your craft. Well, we had the voting scenes in Cuckoo's Nest, and there were three major confrontations. Um, and then finally, um, you know, Jack breaks the glass. Well, there was a scene. When Sid Lassick, who plays uh, um, Cheswick, it's in the movie. Now, you got to understand, the final cut 
is the most subdued and controlled version of those takes. Mm-hmm. So Sid started acting way out of character over and over and over and over <laughs> again. It went on for weeks. And then during the, the when he finally goes, I want my cigarettes, which gives you the damn right because they're not like cookies and blah, blah. That was it. That was the smallest version. He was so over the top and overacting because he was selfish. And if Sid hears this, Sid, you know, I don't even know if he's still with us, but the bottom line is I'm a straight talker, and that's exactly what happened. So we had lunch for 100 people. The caterer has knives. The caterer, you don't mess with your chef. They're busy. They're they're kicking it. They're really kicking it in a hot kitchen. And one of our assistants had to go down the hallway and say, hey, um, uh, Jack just walked off the set, and, and, and can we have lunch, uh, you know, now? And he goes, it's, he says, I need another half an hour. So we had a half an hour of studio time that was dead time. Now, when you're an accountant and you're an investor and you're an executive producer and, and you're doing your day out of these timesheets and you realize how much it costs you per minute, Sid uh, just burned uh, a, a half an hour of time. Um, because of his selfish behavior, he he kept overacting. He wanted to upstage Jack Nicholson because oh, that's God. the moment when Jack walks off and and breaks the window, and and Sid continued until the rest of the whole film. He was always trying to steal the scene. So Jack Nicholson says, um, "Well, you know, screw this," and he walked off the set before. You know, we were supposed to go another half an hour. And he puts his arm around a friend of him uh, from Colorado, Ken Kenny. He played Bean Scarfield, uh, one of the... He was. Uh, he, he always had his hands clasped and his kids set of eyes cast down. That was Kenny. And he's walking out to his motorhome. And before he leaves the room, now you got to understand, we have uh, people from the foreign press, people from the press all over the world every day. And then we're all witnessing this. And Jack, as he's walking away, he goes, Hey, Kenny, you know, it's just another day. Another 10 grand. Looks over his shoulder and says, Right, Sid? Oh. And walks off the set. Now you got you got the executive producer, Michael Douglas, Joel Douglas, Milos Foreman, and they're pulling Sidney down the hallway into a room, and you could hear bellowing yells and screaming and <laughs> they could have sued him for all that lost time i mean I, he was a little humble pie for a few days after that and then he kept trying trying to sneak into stealing scenes as an example God. when my character ellis finally gets you know he's getting the booze from the enema bag and, and he's supposed to uh, milos foreman wanted a tight close-up where ellis becomes a human being and he has that lovely smile. Right. That's what he wants. That's what the whole idea of McMurphy and, and his spirit and blah, 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 and the humanity and all of the three are the arcs that make the story relevant. That was a cherished, wonderful moment. And it was my only close-up. But it was necessary, and that's what was required for the scene, for, 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 for the movie and the script, and that's what the director wanted. He wanted that wonderful, magical moment where a lobotomy patient arises into you can see on his face he's present every single time we tried to make that scene 
and the, the, we didn't have a lot of time to, to do that scene. We had set up camera, set up locking, and, and let's shoot it in less than 20 minutes. Sid tried to steal every take, every single time, and he did not have lines. So what he was supposed to do was just shut up. A, a still shot of him giving me the booze, pull it away, and then I have my moment. Well, every single take, he would say, oh, Mr. Ellis likes the wine, the, the booze. Uh, oh, look, he's getting drunk. Uh, oh, you like it? Are you going to get good? I mean, he just kept stealing the team, and, and Milo would go, cut. And clean me up, do it again over and over. Finally, um, uh, we had to uh, put uh, reload the camera. And Milos is, is furious. I'm not happy, but I'm a newbie, and I'm going, man, this is an important scene. And we're going to—he's just ruining it. He's stealing it. He's so full of ego, so selfish. And uh, Joseph Elick, who played uh, Benzini, I'm tired. I'm tired. That guy. He walked up to Sid, backed him up into a corner, and, and just said, look, this is an important scene for the movie. It's the kid's only close-up, and you keep effing it up over and over and over again. If you don't stop it, I want to punch you right in the face. <laughs> That'll work. So that, was, that was an interesting day of work. And I learned that you left. You're a professional. You show up. Just like in Lords of Salem, when the, the, when the pilgrims who could not read the arrest warrant late at night after the actresses have been uh, you know part scantily clad at night in it's cold long shots with the fires and then we arrest the witches the two very famous Shakespearean Oscar winning actors in Rob Zombie's uh, uh, Lords of Salem and I'm there with Sid Haig and they hold up the, the uh, arrest warrant and here's what we hear. Rob, can you make the torches a little brighter? <laughs> I, I, I don't have enough light to read read the arrest warrant. Cut. Everybody goes to their trailers. Rob knocks on the door and he says, man, I'm so sorry. If I didn't know that they couldn't uh, uh, see, I would have made them uh, uh, prescription lenses for them in, in frames that looked like they were from the period. And I go, Rob, no, you wouldn't. No. If they couldn't see, if they, it wasn't a matter of them not being able to read the arrest warrant. It was a question of them memorizing their lines. Mm -hmm. They didn't know their lines. Right. And, and the studio would not give them another day's shoot to reshoot. And sometimes you can't do a reshoot because certain actors are under contract or they're unavailable. Right, right. When you get around to changing the schedule to reshoot for all day, that could be a month from the day of when you were doing it. So that is unprofessional. It's just like when I worked on Highway to Heaven with Michael Landon. I had overstudied. I knew everybody's line. And when it came around to me to say a particular line during the, uh, uh, you know, uh, when I'm there with Michael and Victor French and, uh, and the contract scene, um, on one particular take, my mind went blank. Michael says, cut. The script lady had the script right in front of my nose. Two seconds later, she said the preparatory line. And I go, da-da-da-da. And she goes, got it? Yeah. I look at Michael. He goes, got it? And I go, yeah. Go on it. Go. Take two. Nailed it. Good. Moving on. Michael Landon follows me, puts his arm around my shoulder, and he says, don't worry. We all forget our lines occasionally. Now, it sounded like chastisement to me. I felt embarrassed. I go, I'm sorry, Michael. He says, no, no, no. You did fine. 
and we do all have our mind go, you know, brain fart once in a while. Right. So you're doing fine. Right. What I just want to let you know is that uh, you're doing a great job. I only hire the best. I hired you. But I want my people, my camera operators, my crew, my staff, I want them to be done with today's work so they could beat the L.A. traffic, get home, sit down, and have a meal with their family because this is a tough industry and a lot of times we don't have that opportunity. That's the kind of guy Michael Landon was. Uh, I heard he was. I never got a chance to talk to him, but I understand he was a terrific guy. Um, Michael, did you? How did you know that you shouldn't overstate your case? I mean, you were not an actor. You hadn't studied acting, or maybe if you had, uh, just a bit. How did you know just to be yourself? Well, um, I had I had some friends that were actors uh, when I was in grammar school. They were mostly on Disney Channel. Um, uh, we knew the Red Skelton family. We used to go there on a, on occasion. R- Richard, before he died of leukemia, was in my grammar school class. We would hang out together. Uh, Anthony Caruso, whose son, by the way, was an extra, who was my driver, just by lottery. You know, okay, we need a driver. Tony, I'll go. He happened to be there the day when I did Doc Savage, which was uh, calming. Because you know, come on, I'm a guy that looks different. Never been an actor before. You know, can't, can't go anywhere when I walk outside without people, you know. Now I'm not saying people, you know, made fun of me or gawked and stuff. That was high school and grammar school right, and shit. Right. But the bottom line is, like, I go, I'm way out of my element. But I do have a minor in art history. I, I like music. I can, So it was a possibility of having a career, which means you can pay your, pay your bills, have a family, you know, have a normal life. The first interview I ever had done was uh, four or five pages in the L.A. Reader uh, by a very distinguished uh, writer. It was called The Boy Next Door. And at that time, I was literally living in a homemade camper on the back of my 1965 Chevrolet pickup truck with my dog, living in the street while I'm trying to, you know, keep an acting career going, sleeping on people's uh, couches. And uh, uh, it was very difficult. and try to keep a job, and then you go, oh, i got to go on an interview. Okay, you just lost your job. Good luck on the interview. I mean, that's very common. But I had to turn it into something because of my uh, uh, medical uh, uh, problems due to the uh, premature birth and whatnot uh, kept me from uh, pursuing other areas where I had been excelling, like in restaurant business. I could have been a chef. A lot of could have, should have, but sometimes uh, life won't let you. So, you know, I've always been sort of resilient in a certain manner. doesn't mean everything is hunky-dory every day, but uh, you, do, you do what's in front of you. So how did I know um, not to overact? Um, I had some really good advice, and one of them was from Milos Forman. He said, he stood me in front of a, a Panavision camera, or, 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 and he said, I asked him, I said, I asked him the very question that you asked me. And here's what he said. He handed me a book on cinematography, number one. Stands in front of the camera, as he tells me. Takes a puff off his pipe and he says, I want you to have a love affair with the glass. The glass is the lens. Mm-hmm. But when people put marks on the floor and they take a measuring tape and you, you grab it and you put it up to your eyeball to where your eyes are, 
and, and they mark down those different focus points, you need to pay attention to that. You're not a famous actor. Even if you are, you shouldn't be going, capture me, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's, not, a, that's not a professional. Right. That is not a professional. Right. At all. At all. So as far as... Uh, uh, I remember the Bruce Lee movie, which I shared a, a quote with Brandon when we did The Crow. I, uh, when Bruce Lee is talking about go, the, it's Lao's time the kid, he's going to go to the Hans tournament but it's time for the boy to have his karate lesson and you know he says kick me you know and the kid throws him a kick and he goes again he goes not with anger it's emotional content it's like pointing your finger to the stars do not focus on your finger, or you will miss out on all of that celestial glory. And he says, again, and the kid goes, um, <laughs> he slaps him on the head. No, don't think, just do. So I picked up on something a long time ago, which was, and I tell every actor, especially one for the start now, because if you do stage, it's a totally different thing than camera. Totally, totally different. And I say, uh, your, your head's going to be five feet and maybe four feet wide and six feet tall on the, on the big screen in a close-up. It sees everything. So what I recommend that you do, and practice, and I practice this for thousands of hours until it becomes second nature, stand in front of a mirror. Look at your face. Don't look at every detail in your face, but just see a face. Detach your identity, personal identity, to where that's just a face. It's not you. It's the face. Now, empty all of your emotions. Now, think of something. What is the emotional impact of that something? Don't move any muscles. Just think about the emotional impact of what it is you're thinking about. It will read in the mirror on your face really hmm. that's acting that is acting michael you are one hell of an actor i i love the fact that i get to talk to you twice in one day man it's a it's a great thrill for me i'm a huge <laughs> fan michael you got a couple now you promised me this morning on the morning show that you'd come when your book comes out you come back on tour oh absolutely i had that conversation with my manager about an hour ago and then she said oh by the way this guy's going to call you back and i said okay <laughs> okay whatever all right all right it'll make him happy <laughs> it'll made me it made me happy michael thank you so much for your time and thanks for your great work in the movie sir have a good day uh thank you for the fine compliments uh, go out and make a difference uh you know um i work a lot with uh some of my, uh, not hobbies, but uh, interests are safe houses for mothers and children, yep. non-kill non -kill animal shelters. Um, a very famous person who, uh, I won't mention his name, but it's a wonderful thing. He's very famous on TV, and uh, he helped sponsor uh, to arm people in uh, the elephant preserves in Kenya to... Uh, Make sure hunt. Make sure poachers don't kill the last of the wonderful pachyderms elephants. Hey. There's a lot to do, and 
It's just like, uh, I don't know if it was your, uh, your interview earlier, one of the channels asked me what, what, you know, what's something scary, and I just said, honestly, our grandchildren not having um, the ability to see all the great beasts that, you know, who, who or whatever you pray to. Right. You know, allow them to happen, however they happen. Bottom line is, um, I know people in the Cousteau Society, and um, I know scientists. I have my whole life. If we don't get our act together, we as humanity, and make our children's and our children's children's uh, world safer, cleaner, it's going to be dead. Well, hopefully, we're just... So, people say, why do you watch scary, why do you watch scary movies? <laughs> I watch scary movies because I, I can survive that. But then I feel like maybe I can watch the news, which is scarier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And maybe we can make a difference if we work together. It's but, uh, the oceans are in peril, but there are people that have ideas on how to make a difference. The problem is greed. We were just talking about... Mike, honest to God... And the, lot, and the lust for power... What you're saying right now, we were talking about during our break uh, about 25 minutes ago. It's all about the money. It's about greed. And it's disgusting, Michael. I agree with you 100%. Well, here's a good thing here. Next time you meet one of those people, because trust me, there are billionaires that are doing great work. But when you meet one that's arrogant and gives you that, what are you going to do, you little tree-hugging hippie? (laughs) Here's what you tell them. (laughs) Number one, you're probably not going to change their behavior. But this usually gets under their skin, and their skin is basically their ego. And here's what you tell them. When you're in that nursing home, and your kids don't visit you, and it's time for that change of some of your youth implements that are attached to you, you might want to be nice to that nurse or that caregiver it's getting paid way less than what they deserve. Because how you go out is based upon how you got in. Have good luck. Have a nice day. Gotta go. Bye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Michael, come to town. You gotta come into town. That's all there is to it. On your book tour. Yeah, yeah. I recommend if you, uh, uh, I like a Mon diner, and if I'm going to have a uh, adult beverage, I like it to be a nice four six percent IPA that's from a local brewery because I don't uh, I, I don't support the uh, conglomerates. I shop local to Mon Works for me. Michael. I don't want to see them be a greeter at Walmart. That's why. <laughs> we'll talk to you soon, Michael. Thank you again for your time, sir. Thank you much. Have a great day. Stay above ground. We'll do it. Michael Berryman, ladies and gentlemen, we'll be right back in a couple of minutes. Tom here for Shift Real Estate. Last year, about this time when we were making plans for Key West, I met the folks from Shift Real Estate. And when I heard the Shift story, it made sense to me. It made sense to my kids, and it makes sense to pretty much everybody that's heard about them. Shift Real Estate saves home sellers thousands of dollars on real estate fees. How do they do it? Shift lists for a flat fee of $5,000. You work with a full-time salaried agent. They take professional photos and videos of your home, list it on the MLS, and market your home online, all for a $5,000 flat fee. Call Shift Real Estate and tell them about your home. Tell them that you heard me talking about it, and they will tell you how you can save $10,000 or more when you list with Shift. 
It's the common sense way to sell your home. Visit shift2sell.com. That's shift, the number two, sell.com. Because life is expensive enough. Hey, it's Tom, and thanks to Profile, I've lost over 100 pounds. Yeah, that's right, over 100 pounds. I've been talking about Profile, and I'm telling you, I feel fantastic. Profile helped me, and they can help you, too. So now that I've lost that weight, it's time to maintain and keep the weight off. You've heard me talk about Danette, who helped me lose the weight. She's now guiding me to maintain keeping the weight off. She's been incredible. And I can't thank her enough. She is great. You should really reach out today. Profile will set you up with a free, no-obligation consultation. No reason to wait any longer. Like I said, it's an absolutely free consultation. Check them out at ProfilePlan.com forward slash Twin Cities. And if you use the promo code Tom Barnard, you will save $100 on your Profile membership. Reach out today. You'll be glad you did. Check out ProfilePlan.com forward slash Twin Cities. That's ProfilePlan.com forward slash Twin Cities. ProfilePlan.com forward slash Twin Cities. I am here to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, what a thrill it was for me to talk to Michael today. I got to talk to him this morning, and then they said, hey, Tom wants to talk to you again this afternoon, so it was nice enough to call him. But uh, I don't know that Michael gets complimented on his acting much because people are so enthralled with his appearance, which is natural, by the way. Well, not to mention the movies that he tends to be in don't tend to be appreciated in that way. Because horror movies, you know, it's all about the scares and the thrills and that kind of stuff. No one's, like, analyzing the acting in those movies. But see, when I went to first, when I first saw him, I thought, as soon as I saw him, I thought, oh, it's going to be one of those, I'm coming to get you. I thought he was going to, you know, but he didn't. He just talked like a damn good actor, actually. He understands what acting is, and he's a damn good actor. And a hell of a good guy, Seems like a great guy. Yes. He does indeed. That's all we have to say. What do you think of that? Uh, a coroner was called to that campsite. Uh oh. What campsite? Oh, the Brian Laundry. Laundry, Laundry oh. guy. Where they found all that stuff? The, uh, yeah. Why would they call a coroner if there's well, no body? Well, maybe there is. <clears throat> That's what oh, she's wondering if maybe I his see body's right there. Northport, somewhere. Florida, it is. Northport is right where she's Sarasota from. Sarasota County coroner has, coroner has been called into a site where items belonging to Brian yeah. Laundry were found Wednesday, early Wednesday. A cadaver dog was also deployed in the yeah, area. See, there you go. Maybe he killed someone else. He could have. He's on a, a killing point. spree. I'm maybe, on a spree. Maybe someone man. recognized him. Yeah. Well, you don't call yeah. a coroner unless there's a body, usually. Yeah. No. Yeah, so we're wondering if there is a body. Apparently, they found three bodies that had nothing to do with this case. What? Oh, yeah, parks? I'm sure there's yeah. bodies oh. all over the place. Oh, yeah, bodies, bodies everywhere. 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 <laughs> bodies all over the place. Bodies. They've been finding, well, since, since the drought this year, a lot of water has receded, like in, in Lake Mead, and they find all kinds of people in cars that have well, been shot in the head and oh, yeah, car well, dumped in there. Near yes. Vegas, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're finding people there all over the place. Oh, yeah. California. A lot of those lakes are oh, like a mile in now. Oh, wow. Yeah. A mile? Yeah, a mile. Jeez. God, isn't that a mad, what an amazing thing. Well, yeah, Catherine, you didn't know that, though, huh? What? That they found three bodies. No, I did him. not. I'm surprised that's all. Yeah, yeah well, honestly, that's true, yeah. yeah. Apparently, two of them were suicides, though. And Most of them the are probably. No I guess a lot of people do that. They, if they're going to commit suicide, they go to some park. Well, it's 
Well, uh, Okigahara. Suicide. Yeah, yeah, suicide forest. Forest. Yeah. Suicides are up right now, too. They're yes. way up, yes. There was Very just one high. attempt guy trying to jump off the parking ramp at Center Village. Really? Yeah, just now. Jesus. Wait a minute, what? A lot of people jump off of parking ramps downtown to commit suicide. Yeah, yeah I suppose. It's kind of common the, downtown. Quite the plunge. Me and Nancy unfortunately witnessed one at the government center. Ugh. Oh, did you really? Yeah. Not from the top. Yeah. What is that, about 20 floors? I don't know if it's 20, but... Plummet! High enough to die. High enough to die. Yeah, worldwide exclusive tents have been erected uh, in the park. They're, yeah, they're, they're oh, the there's tents. There's a, there's a body. I'll say there's a body. Well, there's a there's big tents. blue tent up. I'm looking at it right now. There's a tent. There's usually a body. That's what I'm thinking. Tents erected at Florida Park where laundry parents see items belonging to son. His parents got there. But there is a very big blue tent covering an area. I mean, they're not going to put a tent up for items. Yeah, no reason for, to put a tent up for items. Yeah, You're no. right. Yeah, I wonder if, I wonder if we're going to find out by the end of the day that this guy either cacked himself or somebody else took him deep. Or it might be one of just another body. Well, apparently his parents made an announcement that they were going to go look for him. Yeah, yeah, they did. And then all of a sudden it's like with the cops and the FBI and everybody's like, oh, we're, we're going to go too. It That's just sounds so weird. dumb. <laughs> oh, I guess we should look. <laughs> for this guy well, if you're going to look, I guess woman. we should look. Yeah, weird. Yeah, this is going to be quite something because they've called in a coroner. They've pitched these huge tents. They're, yeah, mm. something's going on. Something's happening. There's but just remember, it could just be somebody else's body. It could <laughs> be. Like, how sad is that? Very well could be. I didn't realize that what I've, what I've seen in my life is pretty rare. Because, well, you guys were with me for one of the dead bodies, but the other two was yeah. one. Well, the one in, at Bassett's Creek, I was by myself. Just walking through the park, and there's a hooker face down in Bassett's yeah. Creek, baby. That was a nice touch. But, I've seen you know. two dead bodies, and then... The worst one I've ever seen. I was driving down 95 through West Palm. Naturally. And a, I was, there was no one on the road. And there was a guy right in front of me. Right dead in front of me. And I looked down the radio for one second, looked back up, and it, the car was on its roof. Oh. oh and wow. I don't know how it happened. It was just on its roof when I looked back up. And then it went to the rear and started riding the guardrail. And I went out, and the guy's head was had mm. been out the window ah. the whole time. And some oh, brown God. water was running ah. out of his head. And I just was like, just don't move. And he, he was conscious, so eyes were open, Not for moaning, long. and then other people stopped, and, and it was disgust. It was gross. But I seen a, my, both my dead, I seen a dead body, another dead body in Florida floating down a canal. It was all blown up. Oh, mm, yeah. Like a balloon. That's what they do. Gross. It was gross. It was gross. And yeah. then, they, then they, they, I called, and uh, they said, stay there. It was me and my buddy Jeff. We were in my van, and. We stayed there, and they came and they popped it before they pulled it out. Yep. Oh it yeah, very gross. Well, Passolt has a great <laughs> story with a, about with that. One of those the, the things and potty it poker. Spikes, yeah. Jeff Passolt, okay, when Jeff. he was a news reporter back in the day on Channel Eleven, years and years ago, was called to a, a scene where a guy was found in the Mississippi River, and they pulled him out of the river, bloated as a sum bitch. <laughs> And they looked at Jeff Passel and said, you need to back up quite a bit. And he goes, oh, I'm just here to cover it for Channel 11. They said, okay. Boom. Sprayed it all <laughs> over him. Oh, did he barf for days? <laughs> he probably Vomit. did. They popped this one in the water. And they, they, imagine... they used a long pole. Oh, they do yeah. Use long pole. yeah, they yeah. Are. I watched the guy. He was oh, like, boom. nasty. I saw a load of dead bodies on Highway 24 going through Tennessee. 
Oh, yeah. We were backed up for hours, backed yeah. up for hours, and we were really pretty close to oh, where right, where the cops and everything were. And I, I actually got out of the car and walked up there because it, it was all blocked by semis and all this stuff, so you really couldn't see. I was like, what the hell's going on up here? I mean, we were hours. Walked up there, there's like bodies like yeah. all over the place. See, yeah. car accident bodies are a bad thing to see. Cause that was horrible. Smashed up pretty blood, bad. Well, blood. And yeah, blood. They had them covered off. up with blankets, but still, it was like they wouldn't be covering these people up with blankets if they weren't dead. And I don't hear no. any sirens coming, so... Car wrecks and airplane crashes, but you don't want to see those bodies. No, the only body I'm I've sure. ever seen is a older man in a Walgreens parking yep. lot. My my cousin one time, my cousin PJ's. Well, there's a Walgreens there too. My cousin PJ's living one, in in, in L. A. and there's a oh. bad odor coming from his building, so he calls it in because he knows it's somebody dead, and the cops come and they go in the guy's house and he's dead. And my cousin's like, "Can I go look at him?" Oh, and, God. And, and, and the cop let him. And that, really? Yeah, the cop let him go in the house, go in the apartment. That's amazing. Why would sit, he do that? I don't know. L. A. Cop. And the guy was sitting in a chair, and my cousin said he can't get the, can't get it out. Of his face because he was all bloated and gross. It was, oh, and it was decomposing. He'd been there for like weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my my brother used to winterize HUD houses for the city. Oh yeah, yeah. So he walked he's into a couple things. things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That'll probably do it. So Alex, you've seen two dead bodies in Walgreens parking lots, and both times. Yeah, because <laughs> one was in two different times. Yeah, because they couldn't afford Walgreens. their meds. <laughs> Died because they there. can't afford yeah, their meds. Yeah, one was in the Orono Walgreens parking lot. I How's that possible? Driving around. <laughs> I was driving where Kaya used to live. I drove there all the time. In Orono? Yeah, and it was a Walgreens parking lot there. And then, oh, yeah, I forgot about Yeah, we were on our way to the airport or something, yes. weren't we? Yeah. When yeah. We were at the Byerleys and, yeah. and what were they Golden Valley. Valley. What were yeah. they dead from? I don't know. I have no this idea. This guy I, died I, of old age. I was, in my, I was in my car the other the other Walgreens mm. dead man. I hope if I get elderly, I don't just drop dead in the Walgreens parking lot. I don't want to die it's in not a, a good way to, either. Not a nice way to go. No. I no. mean, dropping dead probably guess, is the yeah. best way to You're go. Just all of a but not in a parking dead. lot. I wouldn't want someone to back over me. I know a guy, Mr. Alley, <laughs> yeah. he, was, he was a big golf, golf, golfer from Tennessee. But he lived in West Palm. And he was going golfing every day. And he took his first swing. Dropped dead. Oh. That's a good way to go, though. Oh, yeah. Well, that's true. Yeah. He was a very, he was true. one of the happy. I always remembered him because he was one of the happiest people I've ever met in my life. Huh. He was just a happy person. You don't see many happy people. I know. Is. He didn't yeah. know anybody. <laughs> he, no, did. Really. he did. He did. He, goes, he, did. he knew me, and he was just always really happy, man. Never met any people, huh? <laughs> it's weird, right? You don't meet people that are just genuinely happy and happy no, for you. Very rarely. And happy right. for you. Who wrote it? Hell is other people. Jean-Paul Sartre. Mm-hmm. But no very one's good. ever happy for other people anymore. No. Oh, God, I no. Am. And they want, if you are happy, happy, they want to make you always. less happy. I'm happy for people when they something good happens to them. Me too. I am. I'm genuinely happy for them. Why not? It's a, that's the way life should I be. I want to see people be successful yeah, and I wanna have see, yeah. great lives. And have nice things happen to them. Yeah. Yes. And I read Absolutely. this thing the other day. It was this guy. He said, anytime I hear about somebody doing something that isn't my cup of tea, so it's like you wouldn't necessarily be like, yeah, great plan. It's like I always think to myself, I'm glad they're happy. Really? Yeah. And I'm like, that is nice. That's what I'm always I feel like a lot of the time it's like, why would they do that? That doesn't make any sense. And blah, blah, blah. I mean, everybody does it. I do that just, all the time. It, it, he, that guy like, stuck in my head because I know a lot of people. I've met a lot of people in my life. Mm-hmm. And he's the only one. 
taught. That's what I can say was genuinely a happy man. I know. I, I I say that kind of stuff all the time when people are all judgmental about somebody being religious or some political affiliation that they don't like. It's like, hey, you know what? If it makes them happy, yeah, be happy. If that's what get, gets them through the day, what what is it? Why is it your problem? But why is that your problem? Here's what I don't understand. Why can't people be happy for somebody who's done well? They cannot in this state. Not in this state. <laughs> they can. This oh, state. in this state particularly, they can't. California, they do. People are happy for you. Yeah, that's all anybody more. wants to do in California. But not here, man. If you make it, make it here, they hate you. That's man. They like to knock people down a few pegs. Yeah, we gotta knock him down even, a peg Even other two. people that have made it. Uh, yes. Oh, absolutely. You didn't deserve to make it. I did, but you did. I know. It's, it's re- like, what? It's got to be a sort of a jealousy thing. Oh, no doubt. The only Most people likely. I can say that aren't like that in Minnesota are the music people. I had more people in the music community embrace me in this state than anywhere else I've ever lived. Hmm. Well, that's good. Like everyone from Prince's band and all those people, that Bobby whole group. Peterson family, they all been just sweethearts. So, that's a nice family. I remember when Ricky I was in the horse so world. So much talent in that family. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When I was in the horse world, the, cr- the cross-country people were all, like, helpful to each other and nice to each other. Where in other realms, say, the it's like a, a whack, lot of pettiness. <laughs> Hunter and, jumper people oh, are, like, some of the wow. worst humans alive. They are. Yeah. There are some weird horse people. I'm sorry. Yeah, there are. They're just and know-it-alls, man. Yep. They all have a they're all they're, they're they know everything about horse. Well, and hunter jumpers is like the fancy horse people, yeah. so they're the wealthiest like, of the wealthy are into that sport. They're rich and snobby and better than you. And I got I have to say I have the best sporters in the world. There That's you nice. go. They never I never see them. Okay. <laughs> there you go. All right, I'll close with a Ricky Peterson story. Do you ever hear my Ricky Peterson story? His first no. time he appeared in Japan? Uh-uh. God, what a great story. Because he and I did it. Well, I did his song. He wrote a song called King of the World, and I did the voice for it. Uh, Catherine has it on her car, which I never knew that she kept it, but it was released. But in any case, Ricky comes in the studio. He goes, Tom, I'm so embarrassed. I said, what's the problem? He goes, well, I just got back from Japan, and I made a huge mistake. He said, I didn't mean to do it. I just didn't, wasn't thinking. I was in Japan. I was on the radio being interviewed, you know, just having a great time. And the guy says to me live on national Japanese radio, so are you having a good time? How do you find Japan? And he, it was cold, and I said, without thinking, eh, there's a little bit of a nip in the air. <laughs> like whoops! Yeah, let's not go with lost that, in translation. We? Well, Nippon is yeah. not a uh, that's not a no. uh, an insult. No. All right, that's everything. Thank you again to Michael Berman. I think the world of Michael Berman. What a hell of a talented guy! Once again, here's a guy born with all these afflictions. I mean, no, he's got no fingernails. He's got no teeth. He's got no toenails. He's got none of this stuff. Uh, and did he sit and whine about the hor- horrible breaks he got? No, he no, turned it into not something. a victim. He's not a victim. That's That's exactly right. I've always admired that man. Talk to you tomorrow with the family.